The year was 2081, and everybody was finally equal. That's the opening line of Kurt Vonnegut's short story, Harrison Bergeron. While most people may see a paradise in a completely equal world, Vonnegut saw hell. People who are more beautiful than others would have to wear masks. People who are smarter would be forced to hear distracting, loud noises in their ears. Athletes who were faster than others would have to wear heavy weights to slow them down. Every difference and advantage would have to be fixed in order to make everyone truly equal all the time. Almost everyone believes in some idea of equality. Most people believe that fairness should reign. But is equality really possible in a world of seven billion utterly unique and completely different individuals? Who will have to make trade-offs and how far should they go? Should we focus on equality of opportunity or equality of outcomes? Is a right to equality possible at all? And do we actually want it? I'm Claudia Flores, law professor at Yale Law School. I'm Tom Ginsberg, a professor of law at the University of Chicago. And this is Entitled, a podcast about why rights matter and what's the matter with rights. Welcome to season two of Entitled. It's good to be back, Claudia. It is great to be back, Tom. I am really excited about this season. And I've missed you a lot because I am hanging out on the East Coast for a bit. Yes, we don't get to see each other in person very much anymore. I'm sure the audience uh, missed the sound of our melodious voices, too. Of course they did. Probably more the interesting things that we talk about on the podcast. Yeah, that's true. Probably more the guests than us. But I'm really excited to come back because we're tackling a whole new topic. Right. This season, we decided to do things a little differently. Instead of talking about human rights concepts more generally, we've decided that in each subsequent season, we're going to focus on one human right. And there's a reason this right is getting its own whole season, because it's a really big one. The right to equality. The concept of equality, it's a little like infinity or nothingness. We all understand what it means immediately and we have an idea about it, but when you really start to take a magnifying glass to it and look at it, you quickly realize it's much harder to define than you think. For example, if you have two apples, my students love me, so I would always get two apples. And in this scenario, Tom has zero apples, sorry Tom, we're unequal. But Claudia, if you just give me one of your apples, boom, we're equal. Yeah, that's unlikely. Also, what happens if we're in the teacher's lounge and there are 30 other teachers, but still only two apples? And what if some of those teachers have oranges, but really just wish that they had apples instead? And who is going to cut up the apples into the exact precise portions so we can divide them up? And then what if some teachers don't like apples and are just going to throw them away after their lunch and then others are going to go hungry? But imagine that problem at the level of an entire country or a region or even the whole planet. Suddenly, true equality seems completely out of reach. How would we ever possibly get there? But there's something really important about the impulse, right? On some basic level, we all feel like we're in the teacher's lounge and that that should be a place of equality, even if getting there seems confusing and maybe even impossible. This season, we're going to attack this question from every possible angle you can think of. How should we think about equality when it comes to diversity? Is there such a thing as different but equal? Does equality mean exact representation in our political leadership? For example, are quotas the answer to an unequal world? What exactly do we have an equal right to? How should equality factor into wealth between nations? How about artificial intelligence? Should algorithms have equality with people? We can't answer any of those questions until we have a working definition of equality. So Tom, what does equality mean to you? 
So to me, I always start with an idea of non-discrimination, that people should not be discriminated against on the basis of morally irrelevant things, which nevertheless are pervasive in our society, like race and gender. But I think there's also in there some notion of equality of distribution. You know, even if you have a non-discriminatory environment, you still might get bad distribution of certain goods. And there's a certain level of inequality of distribution, which is, in fact, immoral. What's your definition of equality? I think that I am more interested in the actual experience of people than just the opportunities that are made available to them. I think that the forces that cause inequality are actually really, really difficult to identify. So when we set up laws and policies and we think that we've created a level playing ground, but we still see differences in the way people are experiencing life, I think usually there's yet another kind of factor or force that's working its way through society and how uh, groups are able to access these opportunities that we then need to pay attention to. Now, I will say that, but that doesn't mean that I know what the landscape should actually look like, right? And you and I have talked about this before. I think the only clear indication, for example, that men and women have achieved equality in my mind is if you saw a completely random distribution between men and women in most areas of society, Right. And until you see that random distribution, then I'm not sure we've achieved equality. There are a lot of people who would argue very strongly against that because then it's assuming that there can't be preferences within groups. And that's also where things get complicated. Obviously, coming to a single agreed definition of equality doesn't seem very likely. Claudia, how are we going to do a whole podcast series on equality, much less make a more equal world if we can't even agree what we're talking about? I suggest we phone a friend. I think first we have to kind of disaggregate equality. That's Sam Moyne, a professor at Yale Law School, a human rights historian, and one of the first people to call when you want to talk about the right to equality. I'll just make a kind of basic distinction between what I would call equality of status and equality of, of distribution. Equality of status, it's basically about access, opportunities, and choice. The right that allows you to move through the world without additional restrictions because of who you happen to be. The value that everyone should be treated equally no matter who they are. And that's like a noble goal. It's, it's like central to anti-discrimination law everywhere I know about it. Then there's equality of distribution, socioeconomic rights, rights to housing, food, health care, efforts to tackle inequality of wealth. Once we're all treated equal as a matter of status, it doesn't tell us what we get in consequence. From a rights perspective, the question is, where should we put our focus? Liberalism in its current form and, and maybe human rights in particular focuses on one, not the other. Sam argues that our international law bodies have already created strong frameworks around equality of status. That's kind of pretty central to global law, at least on paper, and the human rights movement and the, the legal regimes under which it's operating. What's missing is distributional inequality. And, and the question is not, not just whether there ought to be, but what kind of distributional world the human rights project has been part of in recent decades. Okay, that's definitely true. International law may not have a right to distributional equality, but it doesn't completely leave people out to dry. There are some things called minimum core obligations. In my understanding, you know, the concept of minimum core obligations is about setting a minimum within a minimum. It's interested in w what you get generally as, as a matter of setting a floor of sufficient provision. You don't get the same house, you get housing. All the other things on the list, food, sanitation, water, 
And so it's, it's, it's a distinct thing. I think it's a noble thing to sort of say, well, within whatever the right to health or whatever guarantees, we should strive at least in the first instance for some minimum within it. But the larger point is that it doesn't ever promise, let alone guarantee, any egalitarian distribution that might go beyond uh, sufficient provision. You get a prioritization of building a floor of protection through economic and social rights, even as somebody else is obliterating a ceiling on inequality. So if I have 10 apples... Why do you always get all the apples? Don't worry, this time you get one apple. Gee, thanks. What Sam is saying is that one apple may be all you need. And we could say that equality means everyone equally gets at least the one apple to stay alive. But if I have 10, even though I have what I need, can we call that equality? Can we think of a better set of outcomes than the neoliberal ones that we've we've lived through? Because that prescription was about helping the poor or allowing the poor to be helped through marketization. And so you get it in very spottily and in some places like China rather than others, even as marketization would drive local inequality. I just think we shouldn't let it things work out. We should say we need a better a better solution than than one that affects poverty only at the price of inequality. Why can't we help the poor and face down class hierarchy at the same time? It was done in some places in the middle of the 20th century, although never at a global scale. I'm reminded here of the Rolling Stones song. You can't always get what you want, but if you try sometimes, you can get what you need. Of course, not everyone agrees that socioeconomic equality is the right focus. So I'm pressing very much against the standard analytic philosophy way of understanding equality in terms of patterns of equal distribution of this or that good. That's Elizabeth Anderson, professor in political philosophy, ethics, and feminist philosophy at the University of Michigan. She's a prolific scholar, but I'll mention one foundational article she wrote. It's called, What is the Point of Equality? There she argues for an understanding of equality as necessary for a working democracy. Considered during the civil rights movement, opposition during the Birmingham bus boycott to being put in the back of the bus. It's surely no remedy to that if the seats were just as good and just as easily accessible by a rear door on the bus. Equality of distribution just doesn't cut it as a way to understand what's going on. If you're not treated as an equal citizen with rights to speak, organize, and vote, how much does it matter if you have equal wealth? And again and again, what we find with egalitarian social movements is that they're, what they're opposing is some form of durable social hierarchy in which different identifiable social groups are put in superior and inferior relations along the lines of power, that is domination and subordination, or social esteem, as in the case of exalted and stigmatized groups of people. Or thirdly, along lines of standing. And by standing, what I mean is a kind of moral considerability. Are the basic institutions of society organized in such a way that some people's interests count? And this is particularly important when we think about the state and also about the decision making within firms, any kind of productive organization, right? I mean, do workers count in the firm or is it just the shareholders? Just to come back a little bit to the material equality point, within a democracy, do you think that there's a certain amount of material redistribution that's required in order to achieve equality to make that democracy work? 
Oh, no question, right? I mean, even though I criticize distributive conceptions of equality, distributions of resources have to be regulated because they play very important causal roles in supporting or undermining equal social relationships. So, you know, my dissertation advisor, John Rawls, argued correctly that if, if inequalities of income and wealth become too extreme, then even if you have a democratic constitution and laws, eventually the rich are going to call all the shots, politically speaking, and you won't have a democracy even if the forms of democracy continue. He, he basically predicted our current state where we've seen since the Reagan revolution increasing inequality. And democratic backsliding at the same time. Surprise, surprise. But Rawls already predicted that. <laughs> right. It shouldn't be a surprise. We need to contain inequalities of income and wealth within fairly narrow bounds in order to save democracy. So Anderson is arguing that socioeconomic inequality is important to the extent that it undermines democracy. In her view, individuals must be able to participate in a democracy, and they can only do so if they matter and if they have the capacity to express themselves and participate. You need some socioeconomic equality for that to be the case. And Sam agrees as well that there are basic human rights that must be in place to make equality of distribution viable. So it's not like there's like tried and true success on one side of the ledger such that we would just stick to it. I mean, I would hope that even if we decide we don't care about inequality nationally or globally, that we would still keep some some scrutiny on human rights for the limitations that it, as a movement it's had in advancing its own norm. The inability of our international law infrastructure to fulfill either set of rights is something Elizabeth's concerned about as well. Elizabeth, how do you understand the right to equality under international human rights law or what you might see in some constitutions? So, you know, there are some treaties that have, you know, provisions on non-discrimination, but there's also this increasing language that you see in a lot of regional and international bodies on this right to equality, substantive equality within CEDAW. You know, what, what does that mean in that context? Like, what is it that you're claiming a right to when you say you have a right to equality either under international law or constitutional law? Yeah, well, that, right. That's like the million dollar question. I do find, you know, there is a lot of egalitarian theorizing about global justice. I've taught some of this stuff and I've never been entirely happy for it because we do have an understanding of equality, the equality of persons as a moral claim. And you can see that in the in human rights in international human rights, right? You shouldn't torture anybody. Doesn't matter who they are, right? That's just wrong, right? So everyone is entitled to a basic set of fundamental human rights. But once we get beyond that just very fundamental and basic level and move on to more difficult issues like freedom of movement across international borders or equality of opportunity on a global scale, it becomes very, very fuzzy how we're supposed to institutionalize this. And, and I, I haven't really been happy with the way uh, global justice theorists have been thinking because, you know, yeah, you could say, let's take Rawls and apply him globally. Well, what would that even mean? <laughs> you know, equality of opportunity at the global level, would that mean that, say, 
I, I find it hard to conceive how that would work unless, say, everyone spoke a common language. You know what I'm saying? But there are very compelling reasons why different language groups want to keep with their language, <laughs> even if it's relatively small. And, you know, if we were to choose such a global language, the natural one would be English, because that's the one that it is sort of the global lingua franca to the extent that we have it. But that would put English, native English speakers in a kind of <laughs> superior position, <laughs> right? It's just very hard to figure out what global equality in a distributive sense or an opportunity sense would look like. I, I find it very difficult to think through it consistently at, at the global scale, well, even with respect to language. I haven't really found a satisfactory way to think through that. It's much easier to think about equality within a nation state, but globally, if the right to health means something different in India than it means in the United States, the right itself starts dissolving. Another way to think about it is consider even the weakness of democratic institutions or democratic constitutions in countries that don't already have democratic habits and norms among the people. We have many failed experiments. <laughs> where, you know, the United States in, in Afghanistan, right? You can't just install a democratic constitution in a country that hasn't developed democratic norms and habits among the people. It just isn't going to work. And so I think of equality as something that really has to come from the bottom up. If we're concerned about equality of social relations, people need experience in engaging with one another on terms of equality and learn what's valuable about that, then the law can, in a way, piggyback on that because it already makes sense to them. It's very hard to Im impose equality just purely using legal instruments. On this point, Sam doesn't disagree. From my perspective, the movements that had to do with distributional equality were um, socialistic and trade union movements, which are, are, are largely dead in, in many places, having been um, not displaced, but let's say left behind in an era of human rights movements. I don't see human rights movements as very well designed to uh, get us much more distributional equality than they do distributional sufficiency. Still, it's not up to me. I mean, if human rights movements want to try, if human rights movements wanted to sponsor a treaty calling for a right to distributional equality and try to vindicate it, I mean, I wouldn't wish, I wouldn't bet on them to get very far, but these are norms that are in flux and the human rights movement is whatever it does. And so I think we're at that crossroads if, if we take uh, this kind of equality seriously as a moral matter. And what do you make, for example, uh, of the fact that there are a lot of domestic, I guess we'll call them status equality movements that explicitly call themselves human rights movements. So uh, just to give you, you know, an example here in the U.S., for example, my clinic is working with the U.S. Human Rights Network, which is, you know, is heavily populated by organizations that are focusing on the Black Lives Matter movement. That's a movement that explicitly calls itself a human rights movement. I'm curious, why do you think that that's happening? And, and do you think that there's merit there to them calling themselves a human rights movement? Is there some kind of nexus here that is reflecting the kind of evolution that we were talking about? I, I think it's very uh, promising 
it sort of depends on where it goes. On some accounts, the 1970s, when you got a, had a real revolution in claims to be mobilizing for human rights that a, a lot of causes have tried to redescribe themselves, like consider Harvey Milk in San Francisco, the redescription, rebranding, if you like, of, of gay rights as human rights. So that's old, relatively. And I agree with you that it's it's becoming an interesting phenomenon now. The question is, well, what what does it mean? Mike Brown's parents, you know, from St. Louis, where I'm from, traveled to Geneva to, you know, not just call uh, their movement, a human rights movement, but to vindicate human rights in the way that, uh, according to some, you you know, pursue the vindication of human rights, namely getting international attention, maybe. And I think it's great to call yourself anything you want and appeal to human universalism. But Black Lives Matter has made like an enormous difference. Uh, and it's called, you know, it's led to some very interesting abolitionist politics, which have not been very central to human rights movements. And I think that's great. So I would hope we learn from them and not just, you know, celebrate the fact that they are, are calling themselves by our name. So one point Sam is making is that rights are vindicated, not just in courts. Sometimes when groups or individuals make a rights claim, they might actually lose their actual legal case, but you know, they generate a broader kind of discussion or conversation which changes ultimately politics and culture. Right. And and it's interesting because as we were discussing with Sam, there are a number of movements that are explicitly movements for equality that are couching their advocacy in human rights language. But at the same time, we recognize that the human rights system doesn't require distributional equality. You know, and then there are other movements which might not use a human rights frame, but are actually making equality-based claims. I mean, I actually think some populist-based movements are like that, that they're, they're making a claim for equality of status from people who feel like um, they've been sold out by elites, for example. So, you know, you got equality everywhere on all sides of the political spectrum, at least in the United States. The way that I sort of see it is that there are two ways in which the human rights system engages with equality. One is what we were discussing at the beginning, which is this idea of status inequality. So the human rights system is very clear that it's not okay for certain groups of people to to enjoy their rights less, meaningfully less, than other groups of people because of who they are. So I think that's pretty clear. But the second point is also that socioeconomic rights set some kind of floor that bring us all within proximity of each other. Right. There are certain rights that you either have or you don't. Right. Either you can speak or you can't speak. But the right to housing, my housing situation may not be the same as yours, but I still have some kind of experience of housing that is in proximity to yours. And that's what the human rights system requires. I also find Anderson's work to really resonate, especially this idea that if we're thinking about a community of citizens that are engaged with each other and creating government together and creating the terms for society together, that you have to have some measure of equality for people to actually meaningfully participate. You know who I'd be really curious to know what she thinks about this? Who? Let's find out after the break. Carry the Two is the show that pulls back the curtain to reveal the mathematical and statistical gears that turn the world. Co-hosts Sadie Witkowski and Ian Martin bring unique perspectives from the fields of mathematics and statistics to convey how mathematical research drives the world around us, with each episode tackling a different topic. Subscribe to Carry the Two, 
part of the award-winning University of Chicago Podcast Network. Conceptualizing the right to equality in terms of these very broad categories can be incredibly useful when thinking about how international bodies will be able to implement it in different contexts. But one of our more famous colleagues here at the University of Chicago has developed a completely different way of thinking about equality. Yeah, so we zoomed right down the hallway, pun intended, to get her perspective. Hi, I'm Martha Nussbaum. I'm a professor in both the law school and the philosophy department at the University of Chicago. Today, we're going to speak to her about her capabilities theory and how it interacts with notions of equality. It seems that often when we're talking about equality, we're really talking about everyone having equal access to living a life of well-being. But how do you measure something as squishy as well-being? That's where the capabilities approach starts. Okay, the first thing I want to say is that it's a family. It's like utilitarianism, but there are many different versions. So I'm just going to talk about my version. What they all have in common was a reaction against the dominant way of measuring well-being in international development economics, which was, in the old days, simply to refer to GDP per capita. Now, that, of course, is an average And it's not even the best average because GDP can reflect the profits of foreign investment that are repatriated to the investing country. But anyway, any average is going to neglect distribution. So it can give very high marks to countries that have enormous inequalities in all kinds of areas. So South Africa under apartheid used to shoot to the top of the development tables in those days because there was a lot of stuff around, but it wasn't doing any good for most of the people. So the next thing that one might consider is a utilitarianism-based approach that would look at satisfaction of preferences. But once again, it also has the lack of recognition of diversity problem because everything gets funneled into what's called utility and we don't disaggregate the separate parts. But it has some further problems because people have what are known in the literature as adaptive preferences. That is to say, they often tailor their satisfactions to the little that they believe they can actually achieve. As children, we want to fly, and then we don't want to fly when we're older because we realize we can't do it. Unfortunately, the same thing happens with central parts of human life, like political participation, higher education for women, that people don't report dissatisfaction because they don't expect to have that. It's just off limits for them. So therefore, the utilitarian measure is biased in favor of the status quo. And one final problem is that satisfaction is a state. It's a way people are, but it doesn't reflect doing what people can actually do. And so, for example, it would bias policies in favor of just feeding people rather than generating agency so that they're able to feed themselves. And so So we wanted an approach that also recognized agency. So the capabilities approach asks, What are people actually able to do and to be in a number of areas that are then identified as of central importance? But what I wanted to do was to use it as a minimum measure of justice. And therefore, when I go to work on that, I have to really say, which are the capabilities that matter? And so therefore, I've produced a list of the what are called 10 central capabilities. And the idea is that a country is only minimally just if it gets citizens up above a reasonably high threshold on all 10. These include the capability of life, being able to live into an old age and not have your life cut short through violence, bodily health, not being in a state of illness. Bodily integrity, being able to go where you want without being attacked or abused, senses, imagination, and thought, being able to use all of one's senses and freely think and reason. 
Emotion, being able to become attached to things and people outside ourselves. Practical reason, being able to consider and develop ideas of good and evil. Affiliation, being able to associate with others, other species, the capability to live with creatures and plants of our world. Play, being able to laugh, play games, have fun actively. And finally, control over one's environment, being able to participate in politics, to own property, to work freely. And the 10 are regarded as different, not commensurable with one another. So you can't give people a lot of education and do away with freedom of speech, as of course some countries today actually do. So, so that's the idea basically behind my version of the capabilities approach. And as I understand it, that uh, setup of sort of 10 capabilities or 10 sort of core capabilities, which are incommensurable, um, sets up a situation in which what we want to do is empower individuals to make choices across those things, right? Yeah, the, the, the reason to focus on capability rather than functioning is to leave space for choice. And the idea is people might choose not to eat and they might fast for religious reasons or they might have some other reason for not eating, but there's a huge difference between fasting and starving. And it's that difference that we want to capture. People like me may be workaholics and we may not have much of a preference for leisure, but having access to leisure time is very important for people if they wish to use it. I wanted to use the word play rather than leisure time because leisure time sounds like time when you're not doing anything, but play is more active. You're imagining, you're doing things. They're just not the things you're required to do. And you're stretching your imagination. You know, women who, especially working women that I've talked to a lot in India, women who work in the fields all day, suddenly they get a little time to sing or dance or read a book, they report tremendous spaces opening up inside of them that generate new ideas, new wishes, new self-conceptions. And so that's enormously important, particularly for women who often do what's known as the double day, working at a wage labor job in the day and then coming home to do all the domestic labor. And that's true even in some very rich countries. I noticed this problem very keenly in Japan, where I've spent some time. They're, they're stressed because they have no play. They have to commute to their job, come home, care for the elderly relatives and the kids, if there are kids. And so they don't have freedom of mind. And, and I think that's very important. What, where do affirmative measures fit into all this? So can, if the state finds that a certain group of people are not exercising a choice, even if policies are set up in a way to enable that choice, uh, does the state need to intervene to try to rectify that? Or do we take people at their preferences? Well, that's an important question, which has been much debated. And I'm just going to say what I think. Uh, I think that if the difference in functioning is correlated with traditional disadvantage, then we should be highly suspicious. And we should generate affirmative measures to make sure that people are aware of their opportunities, that they have ample preparation to avail themselves of that opportunity. And of course, working further on education is one way of boosting people's choice capabilities. That's, you know, it's been noticed in some social science research by uh, Eric Allart and Lars Eriksson that in fact, in their countries, which of course have less inequality than most, Sweden and Finland, the difference in functioning was correlated with traditionally marginalized people. So then they argued, and this is what I agree with, that it was very, very important to give people a boost. On the other hand, you have to be very delicate in thinking, well, what, what do you really want to do? And of course, with women, it becomes very, very tricky because, of course, there are women who would prefer not to seek outside employment, but to stay in the home. 
that's an honorable choice and we shouldn't forbid women to do that, you know, like some countries have done, forcing them into the workforce. On the other hand, the barriers to getting outside employment come from discrimination outside. They come from pressure from the marital home, often abuse in the marital home. So we have to be very conscious of where those barriers are coming from and try as hard as possible to remove the barriers. So I think the capabilities are all of a piece and the idea of freedom is really quite central to all of them. You don't all have to have the same car or the same house, but what's needed is adequate housing. That has to be high, I mean, not just minimal. Is this really equality though, Tom? I mean, to Sam's point, if one person has a 10-bedroom mansion and another has a three-bedroom house, we can say the person with the three bedrooms has a decent life, but he's certainly not equal to the person with 10 bedrooms. Right. I think what the framework seems to allow to me is that it recognizes that we might have different preferences among these different things, right? You might like freedom of movement more. I might like to play more. So people are just really differently situated. And so to me, what the framework allows us to do is to recognize that people make choices across these dimensions, which can't even be compared with each other. They're incommensurable, as the philosophers would say. And so we're all equal, or should be equal. We need a society in which we are equal to make the choices we want to make. Now, it's true. If I've got the three-bedroom house and you got the 10-bedroom mansion, presumably, it's not just as a matter of choice, but it could be a matter of choice. I myself wouldn't like a 10-bedroom mansion, and even if I had the same amount of resources, I might choose to have the three-bedroom house and spend my money in other ways. Yeah, but there's something there's something just in my mind about those kinds of significant chasms between one group of people and what they have and what another group of people have or what individuals have. That just feels wrong. Elizabeth Anderson might say when you have too much difference between individuals in the same society, it impacts whether or not they end up being relevant or mattering. They won't be listened to. Not only that, but they don't have the capacity to be listened to. And I think Martha might have something to say about this as well. I want to go back to philosopher Harry Frankfurt, who had a very interesting debate about this with Tom Nagel, whether economic equality was a, was a value in itself. And he said, it's not a value in itself, but what you have to ask is, does it impact any of the other capabilities? And the ability to have self-respect, political participation, all of these are important capabilities. So if the difference in housing inhibits your participation in politics because it's linked to denigration and ostracism and marginalization, sure. Now, of course, that's a little bit circular because it depends what kind of society you're in. In Finland, a place that I go to often and I love, if you had a house like a mansion, you'd have to apologize. And you might be able to keep it by saying, oh, it's been in my family for centuries and I have attachment to it. But you really have to apologize because there's such an ethos of equality that that would look, make you look bad. So I think that's basically how things should be. Uh, so if you're in a society that's not like that, as ours is not, first of all, I think you would need to want to move it a little bit more in the Finland direction. But at the same time, you you would try to help the people from not having the stigma that comes from having much less than other people.
Yeah, so Tom, as Martha explained to us, from her perspective, there is some mandate for equality within the capabilities theory to the extent that these inequalities start harming human dignity, to the extent that they actually make capabilities difficult to exercise. Those are the kinds of inequalities that need to be remedied. Yeah, I agree. And I think, you know, her framework expands on, but is quite consistent, I think, with where international human rights law is. You know, the idea that you need a sort of minimum level is, of course, part of the way we interpret socioeconomic rights. But human rights law doesn't require absolute equality of everything. It doesn't. And frankly, absolute equality of everything would be a very difficult task. But that doesn't mean we don't have to ask the question of where we might expect to see equality and to what extent we want to see equality. So there's a number of challenges that we face in thinking through equality, and we're going to spend the rest of the season really trying to understand how equality has been mandated or ignored in certain contexts. And just as important, how the question of equality looks different in different contexts. We're really going to go into the weeds of each of these categories. What are the trade-offs of focusing on one or the other? How close are we as a country and as a world to meeting what might be called a right to equality? How does a right to equality incorporate diversity, diversity of people, of ideas? And what about differently abled people or racial minorities? How does a right to equality extend to AI? That is a good question. Well, it's going to be a wild ride, Tom. So stay with us and we'll see you on our next episode of Entitled. Entitled is a part of the University of Chicago Podcast Network and is produced with the support of Yale and University of Chicago Law Schools. Our show is produced by Matt Hodup and Leah Sisreen. Thanks for listening. <laughs>